0: The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org.
1: Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? of our God.
0: Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, please enlighten our hearts and our understanding to your word this morning as we study how to be in community with each other even when we are apart from each other. We pray for our church community as we watch this pandemic unfold in our communities and in our state and nation and across the world. We pray that you would protect our people, especially the most vulnerable among us. Please apply your scripture to our hearts this morning. Amen. When a person contracts an illness or a disease, they'll begin to see symptoms of that illness or disease. When you begin to see symptoms, you go to the doctor. And he or she will try to determine what the underlying cause of your symptoms is. This is the diagnosis of your condition. Sometimes symptoms are very clear. And you have a definite diagnosis. You have heart disease. Then the doctor will provide you with a prognosis, what your life will look like going forward. You have to cut back on cholesterol, no more fatty foods, no more egg yolks, things like that. And what holds true with us physically is also the case spiritually. So if you have had a heart change, you will begin to exhibit symptoms. You will begin to worry less about the things of this world. Perhaps you'll begin to care more intentionally about the people around you and in ways you never have before. You'll begin to worry less about things like global pandemics. You'll begin to experience compassion for people that you may never even noticed. You'll begin to put the needs of others before your own needs. Your life will be marked by the symptoms of that heart change and you will unmistakably be shown to be a Christian in the wider world. But that's not what was happening in the first century Corinth as we read Paul's letter. Throughout this first letter, Paul's showing these new believers what it means to be a Christian, and he occasionally in chapters 5, 6, and 7 will hammer home what it does not mean to be a Christian. Two weeks ago, you heard uh, Brother Paul Scrabeck discuss the sexual immorality that was going on in the church and Paul's stern warning against behavior like that. This week, we see another case of behavior that is uh, is not appropriate for Christianity, litigiousness. They were suing each other in civil court, members of the, uh, of the same church. So the overall message here that the apostle is trying to communicate is that when you accept Christ as your savior, when you've had this changed life, when you become a new creation, you'll stop wanting to do evil things. You'll stop wanting to sue each other and, and committing sexual immorality. And you'll begin wanting to do righteous things your life will no longer be marked by acts of sexual immorality or litigiousness or lovelessness, but rather by purity, deference, and love for each other. And if your life continues to be marked by sin, then that conversion hasn't taken place. If you don't show those symptoms, then you don't have the disease. Look at me with, uh, look with me at, at verse one of our passage. <clears throat> When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So there are a lot of similarities between what's going on in in Corinth and uh, what happens today in American civil courts. Uh, But there are some major differences and I wanna take a moment um, to distinguish those. We're gonna nerd out a little bit here on legal stuff, so I appreciate if you hang in there with me. Uh, I think it's significant to the passage. First, uh, the types of lawsuits that Paul is talking about here. There are generally two types, generally two types of, of lawsuits, and back then there were two types of lawsuits. There was criminal lawsuits and civil lawsuits, and criminal lawsuits were and are still brought on behalf of the state against a defendant for breaking, a, for breaking the law, breaking a, a uh, violating part of the criminal code. These cases are prosecuted by district attorneys on behalf of the people of the state or uh, on behalf of the emperor, and the defendant will generally be uh, found guilty or not guilty. Uh, And if they're found guilty, they'll be sentenced uh, to their punishment. And if they're found not guilty, they'll be acquitted and they can go about their lives. The burden of proof for a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecution has to prove that that person committed that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. So certainly is a a good way to to put that. Um, Civil cases, however, so that's criminal cases. A civil case is brought by a private party against another private party um, uh, under generally three theories today, but back then it was two theories. They didn't have a theory of property law back then. The two theories were contract and tort. So a contract claim would be if there was an existing agreement and one of the parties breaches a term of the agreement. Any good contract would have the remedy for that in the agreement. So they would have to go to you know go to the court and get the court to enforce that remedy against the, the breaching party. A tort claim is when there's no agreement in place, but society has agreed that party A owes a duty to party B because of the situation in which they find themselves. Uh, Now in civil cases, you don't have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to prove it basically better than the other guy. You have to show 50% plus one that 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 was the case. So a handy way to remember the difference between criminal and civil cases is O.J. Simpson I remember, this was 1994, I think, when the criminal case took place. I was nine, maybe, and, um, uh, but I still remember that white Bronco chase. Um, so what happened in the O.J. Simpson case was, the prosecution, uh, fam- well, they famously quipped, you'll remember, when uh, he was putting on the, trying to put on the bloody glove and it just didn't fit. And the defense team quipped, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. But what happened was the prosecution, the bloody glove was the turning point in the case, and the prosecution was shown to have not proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, uh, what happened was he was acquitted. So he uh, was able to go about his life. But the families of the murder victims the alleged murder victims, Ron Goldman and um, Nicole Brown Simpson, their families sued him in civil court for wrongful death and for survivorship. And they won because they only had to prove their case more likely than not. And so OJ was ordered to pay $33.5 million dollars to the families because he lost a civil claim. So that's the type of claim that Paul is talking about. We're not talking about criminal cases. Um, and in Paul's day, to sue someone in, in civil court, this is a difference between, uh, between Corinthian lawsuits and, and lawsuits today. To sue someone and win in Roman court was a badge of honor. It was, um, it, it was esteemed. You gained a higher standing in society if you uh, sued someone and won. Um, just like the O.J. Simpson trials were the case of the century, every case was very well popu- uh, very well known about. And um, this is because those cases uh, were held in the marketplace. So today, if you were gonna go sit in on a civil trial, or even a criminal trial, you'd have to go down to the courthouse and find what time the hearing is, and um, you have to go through metal detectors. And um, you go sit in the arguments, but that might not be the, you know, they might take days or you might only get there during voir dire where they're, they're, you know, uh, preparing the jury. So it's, it's a confusing time. Uh, and if you want to, you can read about the court records. Sometimes you have to pay a fee to access the court records. So it's kind of public, you know, it's accessible. But back then, this would have been the equivalent of holding a trial in the middle of Costco. Everybody's kind of going about their days, they're picking up, uh, fruits and vegetables and they're picking, up, they're picking out their cuts of meat and oh there's a trial going on what's this about so people would stop what they're doing and just kind of gather around and so it, it was very very obvious that Christians were suing Christians hey isn't that guy part of that part of the Corinthian this new church yeah isn't that guy part of the church too what are they doing suing each other that's weird in addition to that The Greco-Roman judicial system was highly corrupt, and it was very well known that it was highly corrupt. Um, It was so well known it became satirized in a, a novel that was written in the first century there. The main character of this novel at one point laments, a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction, and the nightly juror who sits listening to the case approves with the record of his vote Something bought. So what was happening here was that the members of the Corinthian church were suing other members of the Corinthian church, either out of distaste for each other and trying to gain social standing above that person, or perhaps charitably there were actual disputes among, among the uh, members. So they, hap- they, they, they brought them to court, but they were coming into the marketplace, and this infuriated Paul. Paul. So if, you're, if you've got your outline handy, there are three reasons that Paul was infuriated by this. The first reason was that civil lawsuits, as I kind of alluded to, between believers in the marketplace, damages the reputation of the church. We're a community of brothers and sisters, as were, as were the Corinthians. How can, we, how can we possibly show that we love one another and love outsiders, how can we personify what uh, our calling as Christians if we're suing each other? The hypocrisy here is, is really stunning. And if you've discussed Christianity with anybody, of, anybody who's not a Christian, you will hear that one of their main objections to Christian faith is hypocrisy and that people are just hypocrites. I'm going to come back to that. Um, to that objection, but that's that's a real threat to the growth of the gospel, to the spreading of the gospel. It's our own behavior. Now the second reason, the first reason that Paul was mad was because it was damaging the reputation of the church. The second reason that Paul was mad was that disputes should rarely reach the stage of litigation in the first place. If Christians' characters conform to what Paul later writes a few chapters later He describes love. This is a passage that's read at every wedding, out of context, unfortunately. But Paul's describing what should be our character and how we should look to the world. Look at chapter 13 with me if you've got your Bible handy. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. So if you imagine a person whose life is characterized by uh, by that description of love, can you imagine that person suing another believer in court? I don't, th- I don't think that there's a circumstance under which Paul would think that's appropriate. So first, Paul was, Paul was angry that the reputation of the church was being damaged. Second, he was angry that uh, be- because the character of the Corinthians was just not where it needed to be, not where it should be. It wasn't conforming to the standard of love that he outlines, and the third reason was that, okay, let's say your character doesn't conform. Let's say you're not a perfectly loving person. Still, we have mechanisms to resolve our disputes within the church, we, and we are well equipped. Not, not do we just have the procedure, but we have the wherewithal and the equipment to resolve our own disputes. Don't so look at verses uh, two and three of our passage. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? (laughs) Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? It seems a little strange that Paul kind of just throws in that we're to judge angels and to judge the world, um, especially a few lines after what he wrote in chapter five. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we heard Paul Scrabeck preach on this. Um, Look at chapter 5, verse 12 with me. It says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside the church. So uh, a quick note here to kind of reconcile those two so that we see continuity in what Paul is saying here. Uh, Commentator Fee credits the difference between these two passages to a matter of perspective. Uh, In chapter 5, Paul's writing about present judgments of people who make up the world in which we live. Uh, In chapter 6, Paul's discussing judgments that will take place in the end times. Now, looking at these judgments that will take place in the end times, uh, other commentators tend to agree that the Christian's judging role in the end times that Paul's referring to here will be similar to our Ruling role in the end times. So Paul mentions our ruling role. To understand this, I want to unpack ruling role here uh, and, and how we will rule um, in the end times. So look at, uh, look at 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, if you've got it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And uh, also turn over to Revelation 22, where John describes the eternal state of man with God. This is really a stunning scene. Um, So read along with me or just uh, picture this scene with me. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Believers in eternity will be given a place of honor. and We will reign with God. I think it's fair to say that just as Adam reigned over nature in the garden before the fall, as we read about in Genesis 1:26 through 30. Just like Adam reigned then, we, so we will reign over the new creation in eternity. Commentators seem to agree that the judgment we will exercise in chapter 6 here that Paul describes is similar to how we will reign with Christ in eternity. The idea is that we will sit and participate in the final judgments with Christ, perhaps we will implement his judgments or decide parts of the cases. You know, in American law today you have judges and juries and the judge will decide matters of law and a jury will decide a matter of fact. So perhaps there will will be a, a kind of division of labor or perhaps we will just sit and agree in the judgments. Whatever our role will be specifically, the bottom line is that God has equipped us to have authority over creation, and if he will bring us into the courtroom to participate with him in the end time judgments. If that's where we're going to be, certainly we can figure out disputes between each other. So not only do we have the wherewithal and the wisdom to resolve our own disputes, we also have a very good procedure to resolve our own disputes. Now, Jesus outlined in Matthew 18 a wonderful mechanism for resolving disputes among church members. And in fact, you could apply these same principles to any dispute, even outside the church. Turn with me to Matthew 18 if you can. Uh, We're going to read verse 15 through 17. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Remember Proverbs 27, 6 here, faithful are the wounds of a friend. This is a good thing to do. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if you have a dispute with a brother or sister here at Orchard or another believer outside Orchard, you're to follow Matthew 18. Confront the person if they've sinned against you. you know, perhaps the response will be, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that I did that. Or I regretted saying that thing right as soon as and I, I haven't come to you. I'm so sorry. Thank you for coming to me. I'm positive 90% of disputes among believers would be resolved at this point. This is nipping something in the bud. It's coming to them alone and just saying, hey, here's, I was hurt by this. I'm sure most disputes will be resolved that way. In the case that they are not resolved that way, bring another one or two believers, probably that you both know, and confront them again. Now, if they refuse to admit their wrong, if the offender refuses to admit that they're wrong at that point or or if they are persisting, bring it to the church. For Orchard members, for us at this stage, bringing it to the church means bring it to the elders. If that person continues in their belief that they're right and they have no remorse, even after the elders have confronted them, they'll be treated as an unbeliever or even a tax collector. It seems like kind of a harsh treatment uh, of a brother or sister, but what it would take for them to get to this final stage is total defiance and stiff-necked self-righteousness, which is contrary to the character of Christians. Now, it's worth noting here, how are we as Christians to treat non-believers and how are we to treat tax collectors? We are still to love them. We are not to gossip about them. We are not to deride them or insult them, but we are still to love them. So, along with these reasons that believers are well qualified to resolve their own disputes, and aside from the procedure that Jesus outlined for us in Matthew 18, we also live in a society where there are lots of churches, and maybe you have a dispute with someone outside Orchard who you think is probably a believer. We, we now have alternative dispute resolution mechanisms today that are wonderful, that still keep the dispute out of the public eye. So um, if the matter's not resolved by the time you complete step two, basically, still certainly confront them, still bring uh, another one or two believers who know you both uh, to discuss the matter. But in, rather than bring it to the elders, since they're not a member of your church here, uh, offer to go to Christian counseling with them. So that would be the first step. If if they refuse to do Christian counseling and that doesn't sound good to them, ask them if they'd be willing to sit with a mediator. There are two types of uh, alternative dispute resolution, generally, there's mediation and then there's arbitration. And a mediator, you can find Christian mediators through Christian legal society and same with arbitrators. Uh, So a mediator will try to get the parties to agree. They'll listen to both sides. Most of the time, everybody's in the same room. It's kind of like a more formal counseling session. But at the end, the object is to get the parties to agree. An arbitrator doesn't try to get the parties to agree but he listens to your side, he listens to the other side, and then he or she will make a decision, and that decision will be binding. But the thing about both of these is that they're confidential proceedings. You still keep your, your dispute out of the public eye, and you can have an enforceable uh, judgment um, that's private that will resolve the matter finally. It's a wonderful mechanism and I wish more people would, would uh, take advantage of that rather than going straight to court. Look at verse seven here, just as a reminder. Um, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So at this point, if, if, if the person doesn't agree to Christian counseling, if they don't agree to mediation, if they don't agree to arbitration, if they're not a member of your church, Consider letting it go. It's better for us personally to suffer wrong and to be defrauded than to expose the church to ridicule and criticism of outsiders and to sow division among the body. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things. Love endures all things. This is the type of character that we are to cultivate. And unfortunately, not all disputes are resolved in the way we'd like them to be or resolved at all. But in order to move on from this, you have to just forgive that person in your heart, if that's the case. At this point, I'd highly recommend Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, as kind of the authoritative uh, book out there. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful read. It's not a textbook or anything, um, but he's uh, a wonderful Christian author, Ken Sandy. One further note here on disputes among believers even about disputes with those outside the church. Certainly follow Matthew 18 to the degree that you can. But Paul closes his letter to the Romans with this thought. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So zooming back out here, Paul is reminding the Corinthians who they truly are, right? We, we learned about that in chapter five. He says, this is not who you are. Here in chapter 6, he's saying, but such were some of you." you. You were these things, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. They and we are new creations in Christ. They and we will participate in the final judgments of men and angels. They and we are unable to be separated from the love of God in Christ. They and we have no condemnation because of what we have done, because Christ has taken the penalty on him for what we've done. Litigiousness is not a compatible virtue with Christianity, is what Paul is saying. Two weeks ago we heard how other Corinthian practices are incompatible with Christianity. Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling. The apostles making a strong point in the negative, these things are not who you are anymore. This isn't you. You're a, you're a new creation. You're adopted sons and daughters of the king. You're co-heirs with Christ. Start acting like it. He gets a little bit fired up, but he, he does the compliment sandwich, right? Look at verse 9 with me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by sin, if you look at your life and you have no love of the brothers and you see that list and you're like, oh boy, that's me. If you're looking forward to getting drunk and partying and you have no remorse about it, you have no regret, if you're having sex outside marriage or with another person of the same sex, if you love to steal, if you love money, these behaviors and attitudes are not consistent with the Christian faith. Jesus told his followers that they will know each other by their fruit. And if you have no fruit in your life, if you do not display love as described in chapter 13, if you do not see the fruits of the spirit in your life, if you don't see love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and truth, you need to consider whether you're a Christian. Ask yourself what characterizes your life. The life of a Christian should be marked by fruit, not by sin. This is a stern warning Paul has. It's very serious, both for the Corinthians and for us today. But If your life is marked by sin, Jesus' sacrifice and grace is free and available to you. They're yours for the taking. It's a good thing that he doesn't stop at verse 10. Look at verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11 here. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you can be washed, you can be sanctified, you can be justified and put right with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to note and to be assured here, Paul is not saying that one time you stole a bag of chips from subway and forgot to pay about, and you know, forgot to pay for it, makes you an habitual thief. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if your life is characterized by unrepentant theft, if you are, by trade, a thief, if someone if it is your whole reputation, if someone says, "Oh, you know Joe, oh, Joe, the thief." Yeah you're probably not a Christian. You're not exhibiting the symptoms of a changed life. Recently we studied the doctrine of baptism and it's important uh, to understand the symbolism of baptism to Christianity. The, The act of baptism by immersion when the Christian is fully immersed in water and then brought back up, it's a powerful symbol of our death to sin and are being made alive again. But once we are made alive again, we're not marked by sin. We begin to be marked by Christ's righteousness, which will begin to permeate our lives. We'll begin to show the symptoms of Christian faith. If you're not a Christian, you are alienated from God by sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. It's an important definition here. I'll I'll, I'll repeat that. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We fail to conform to the moral law of God even in nature. But I'm sure that even today, even this morning, I failed to act i failed in act and attitude to conform to God's moral law. Individuals like me who have sinned cannot have communion with God. God warned Moses of this in Exodus 33. We can't be fully in his presence or we'll be destroyed. Isaiah experienced the glory of God and fell to pieces. He said, I am undone when he saw that. God simply cannot have communion with or fellowship with sin or the sinner will be destroyed. And we cannot close that gap through anything that we do. But God, the two sweetest words in scripture, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Each of us will be defendants in our own criminal trials at the end of our lives. And in our criminal trials, we will have two pleas that we can enter. We can say guilty or guilty but. Guilty but Christ paid my penalty. But in order to make that second plea, in order to say guilty but, we have to opt in before our trial. To become a Christian is to claim Jesus' punishment for our sins on our behalf personally, when we can raise our hand and say, I'm one of those that Jesus died for. I claim the benefit of his payment for sins. And if we do that, the punishment for our sins, our sentence will be on Jesus, not on us. Now, it's important to note, once you become a Christian, you don't instantly or ever become perfect. So what happens when a Christian sins? When a Christian sins, we harm our personal relationship with God. We have come out of the courtroom and into the living room. A Christian's sin is an offense to a personal relationship with God. We need to ask for forgiveness. Paul wrote in Romans that we have a spirit of adoption We can come to God as a child with him as our father. We create a barrier in a personal relationship with the God of the universe when we sin. Say you invite me over for dinner. And I say, you bet, I will come Thursday night, seven o'clock, I'll be there with bells on, I will bring dessert. We're both looking forward to Thursday night. Thursday night comes around, you've swept the porch, you've cleaned up the house, you've arranged the table, you've planned the meal, you've purchased the food, seven o'clock shows up, I don't come, I'm not there. You text me at about seven, 10, hey, we, we still on? I don't answer your text, I don't call, I'm extremely rude. Whatever the reason for this, I've put a barrier in our relationship, something that needs to be addressed, it's an offense. I need to explain myself, I need to ask for your forgiveness. And of course, you're going to forgive me because you're a wonderful, gracious, and loving person. When Christians ask for forgiveness for a sin they've committed, we're attempting to repair our personal relationship with God. It's not to achieve our eternal salvation when we ask for forgiveness for something we've done. Jesus has already taken care of that. If we've already opted in, if we've said, I claim that for me, I I want to make that plea, That achieves our eternal salvation because of what Jesus did. But when we sin, we can confess our sins. And when we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us. The barrier will be removed. Of course he will forgive us. We can enjoy a close relationship with God again. Become who you are, Paul says. That's our, uh, our mini-series series. become who you are. When I was in college, I played on the college golf team. And uh, before any tournament, you know, we had seven or eight guys on the team. Before any tournament, only five would travel. So we'd have to have these practice rounds, these qualifying rounds to determine who would travel. And um, our golf coach had a certain idea about the type of person that should be On the team, he had a certain idea about what a Bearcat golfer was. Ask me some other time what a Bearcat is, but we'd play these qualifying rounds, and uh, this particular day, my playing partner was off to a really, really rough start. He started uh, double bogey, double bogey, and then he was on his way to a triple. He'd plunked two in the pond. It was it was ugly. After he put his second ball in the pond, he put his club back in his bag, picked up his towel, picked up his bag, and headed for the parking lot. You don't walk off a golf course. You never walk off a golf course. That's not something golfers do. That's not something competitive golfers do. It's not something a Division I NCAA golfer does. As a result, he got kicked off the team. Permanently, He didn't behave in a way consistent with being a bearcat golfer. That's what Paul's showing us here. Don't behave in a way that's inconsistent with your character. Stop the stuff that is inconsistent with your character. You have a new character. You have a new life. Act accordingly. If you've not claimed Jesus' sacrifice as your plea... If you don't know whether you'll be able to enter the the plea of guilty, but, if you don't know and have not been exhibiting the symptoms of Christianity, know that Jesus' sacrifice and his work is free and available to you. You can make that plea. If you don't know how, feel free to email me. Email the pastors at orchardbible.org. Any of them would love to talk with you, and so would I. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this letter that we have. Thank you for uh, the inspired work of the Apostle Paul that we get to benefit from uh, 2,000 years later almost. We thank you that in a time of uncertainty, in a time of crisis, we can remember that you are sovereign, that you are powerful, and that you love us. Those three truths will give us so much comfort. We pray that you would remind us daily of those. Help us to become who we are. In your son's name we pray, amen.